0: In chapter 21, we're coming down to the last couple chapters, and I, next week probably won't finish it because chapter 22, I'm going to think I'll break up in a couple sections because there's a lot there. But here we are. Finally, all the garbage is over. All the destruction, devastation, all the horrors of, of judgment have already happened. And now in chapter 21, we come to our final destination. Where we as children of God are going to spend our eternity with Him. And often when we think of heaven, we're not sure how to imagine what it's going to be like. There's that song that many of us love called I Can Only Imagine. And it's really true that when we reflect on being with Jesus forever, sometimes it's hard to imagine exactly what it's going to be like because. The Bible doesn't give a lot of descriptions about it, and some of the things we say, frankly, don't sound all that great. You know, so uh, I read a guy one time talking about how he was, his daughter was talking to him and saying, Daddy, what are we gonna do in heaven? And he said, well, we're just gonna worship God and just enjoy him forever, praise him. And she goes, that's it? And she goes, can't we just stop and mess around every once in a while? <laughs> And that's kind of our perception, like, really? Is this it? And we think of you know sitting on clouds and playing harps and going, that's going to get old. And even some of the pictures that we see of you know, majestic spires and, and gold streets, we talk about, oh, streets of gold, how cool that's going to be. But you start to picture it. And this chapter draws some pictures of that. And it starts looking like TBN or like Donald Trump's house or something. <laughs> And you're just going, really? Is it that gaudy and and, and weird-looking, cheesy? Um, Not at all. Heaven is going to be everything that you could ever imagine of everything good that there is. Here in chapter 21, though, we see a part of the description as John was able to see a part of our future state, and especially this place called the New Jerusalem. And he says a lot about it and yet he leaves a lot of things unsaid. There's plenty of room for your imagination to go. There's plenty of room for us to be surprised when we get there. But as we look through chapter 21, we see some definitive statements of, here's what heaven will be, and here's what this new Jerusalem looks like, and yet there are also a lot of negative statements. And A lot of times to define heaven You almost have to define it by what's missing. And so we're going to look at what's there, and then we're going to come back and look at what's missing and see what that tells us about this eternal abode that the children of God are going to live in. So let's start going through this passage. Verse 1, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. We'll get down to the no more sea later. Sorry, you ocean lovers, but we'll talk about that. You you can surf for the thousand year millennium and and you'll be fine. But a new heaven and a new earth. By that, it doesn't mean heaven in terms of the place where God dwells, Um, but it's talking about the sky. It's talking about the atmosphere and everything that's there. The earth is the new physical location where you live. Everything that we know today of what you see as you look up, of what you see as you look down, is all going to be destroyed, and God starts over and makes a new one. Now, in this passage, he doesn't say a whole lot about the earth, other than to make it clear that the entire planet doesn't have the three-fourths coverage of water that it has now. Um, so you have to think in terms of there's a lot of land, a lot of space, a lot of area on this earth, and every bit of it perfectly, perfect climactically, perfect in every way, and so the whole world will be like Orange County. That way everybody doesn't have to keep moving here because these perfect days that we have will be perfect everywhere, the new heaven and the new earth. and. And then John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now this new Jerusalem isn't the entirety of the earth. This new Jerusalem is a particular place that, as we see later in the chapter, it's the place where everyone comes in order to worship, among other things. But it's a city, it's a place, and and it comes down from heaven. Now, many commentators believe that it doesn't come all the way down to the earth, that the New Jerusalem is actually hovering in the air, and we can teletransport ourselves back and forth to it. I don't know, it doesn't say, but he's going to spend an awful lot of his time, as we'll see, with this New Jerusalem. But at this place, at this point, let's just say it comes down, and it's either hovering or it lands. It doesn't make that clear. Um, but it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He is trying to depict the greatest image of beauty that he possibly can, like a bride fixed up, ready for her wedding. Now, you know, I've done hundreds of weddings and never seen an ugly bride. Seen plenty of ugly grooms. See, (laughs) like brides, there's a TV show where brides are trying to look really good, lose weight to fit into their dress. The groom, just order a bigger size tuxedo, you know, it's fine. And as I walk out for a wedding with the groom following me, nobody cares. It's like it hasn't started until everyone stands up and turns around and looks at this bride. And and they're just looking the best they've ever looked in their lives. And, And that's the way he's describing this city. It's like it's so fixed up. He uses the metaphor of a bride. But he goes on and he says, I heard in verse 3 a loud voice from heaven saying, look at this, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Here's the point of this place. This is God's tabernacle. It's his tent. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were traveling across the desert, God never expressed a desire, even after they came into the Holy Land, of having a big fancy temple. God only wanted to live in a tent. David kept arguing and insisting, and finally, God allowed Solomon to make a fancy tent, which was basically a replica of his tent, but it was made from solid things. But God, all he needs is a temporary dwelling place, because the point is, he is dwelling That word means to be at home with. He is with us. And that's what we have to remember as the central focus of all of this is forever we will be at home with him. We will enjoy his presence. The greatest spiritual experience that you've ever had or if you've ever longed for, oh, I just want to be close to God. That's the way it'll be all the time. We're close to him. We're camped out with him and, and, uh, we are His people, and and He is our God. And then skip down to verse five. He who sat on the throne said, "Behold, look at this. I make all things new." And He told John, "Write this, write down, because these words are true and faithful. I make all things new." New. That that verb is in the present tense, which it means continuous action. God just doesn't say, "I make all things new," as if look. I made all things new, but a, an accurate translation would be, I, I am making all things new. See, that's what God does. He's not going to create and then be done with it. God never changes, therefore God never stops creating. I believe when we get to heaven, every day is going to be a surprise. every time he, He's just going to constantly have new things for us to discover and to see for all of eternity because that's his nature. But making all things new is something we desperately need because the old stuff isn't so hot. And so to recognize that what, what this is about is being with the God who is constantly creating. And then we begin to see some of the beauty of what he's creating and it's just stunning but he's making all things new. Verse six, he said to me, it is done. Just like Jesus said on the cross, I'm the alpha and the omega beginning and the end. I'll give of the fountain of the water of of life freely to him who thirsts. In other words, you're not gonna be thirsty. I'm gonna give you everything you need. Like Jesus told the woman at the well, I can give you water that will make you never thirst again. And so the feeling of total satisfaction as being a part of this, And verse 7 He who overcomes, and we know that we overcome because of Jesus dying for us and us accepting him, shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then as you get down to verse 9, the angel comes and says, Hey, I want to show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, the church is seen as the bride of Christ, that's a metaphor. Here, the the city of the New Jerusalem is also seen as the bride because he's trying to predict that same idea of being prepared and being beautiful. And this New Jerusalem is a place where the church gathers as our place to come and be with him and enjoy him. And so um, that's why it it kind of mixes the metaphor a little bit. But he goes, check this out. And he, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, in order to see it, he went up on a high mountain. That's one reason why some people see that it's actually hovering. It's, it's descending, but doesn't come down um, all the way to the earth. A fascinating possibility, uh, whether or not it's true or not, I don't know. But he says, verse 11, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone like a jasper stone, which is probably a diamond, clear as crystal. So he's saying, I saw this city. Again, interesting that he chooses to have a city be the center of existence. Most of us want to get away from the city. A lot of what is about the city is about being congested. It's about traffic. It's about having to deal with the crimes of the city and the frustrations of the city. But a city is what God desires. It was said of Abraham that he was looking for a city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. So even Abraham was looking forward to this city. Well, consider this. You might not want to live in a little apartment or in a condominium that's a part of a building with other people in it. Because the people above you might make noise, the people next to you might... Somebody parks in your parking space, you know, it's just... it's frustrating. But imagine if your favorite people in the world, the people who you are so close to that you would die for them, your best friends, imagine if you could have an apartment building that only those people lived in it. They'd just be right there with you. It would change things. Now, you might go, okay, my favorite people. Uh, You got a duplex? (laughs) Or maybe I'll (laughs) still like my own place. When we get to heaven, everyone will be your favorite people. Everyone will just be so close to you, we will know even as we are known. And that sense of intimacy that we only experience in small doses It'll be just great to get together. Now, this city, again, we can probably go out all through the earth, and we can probably even go around to other you know, solar systems and everything else. Whatever, whatever there is out there in the heavens, we probably have the freedom to do it. But everybody, according to this passage, keeps coming back to this city. And this is like our home. Perhaps each of us has a condo there, a place where we can stay and be a part of this worshiping community? Um, I don't know. Now, when you look at the dimensions of it, people have calculated the estimated dimensions of it, and if you take the number of people that's lived in the history of the world, and if you assume that, say, 20% of them get saved, which is no doubt generous, um, the estimate is each of them would have about 75 acres in this city. It's an enormous city. And so we may have a place there, but we also may have a ranch out somewhere else too. Don't know, it doesn't say. But here is this place, this this special place of being a part of God. And the one who overcomes inherits all of it. We'll have that closeness. And so this city has the glory of God, verse 11. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper, a diamond, clear as crystal. In fact, everything about this city is said to be transparent. Now, today, I wouldn't be so crazy about living in a glass house. But in heaven, you don't have anything to hide. There's no need for privacy because we are all so close that it doesn't matter. And besides that, what what Jesus came to make possible is intimacy and transparency. And so everything about this place seems to be see-through. And when the light hits it, unbelievable things happen, as we will see. But it's like a clear diamond, the city is. And also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates, and names are written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So on this city is a tribute to the 12 tribes of Israel, acknowledging that that's where God really started working with people, as he called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob, and he delivered them from Egypt and everything. And so it's it's a souvenir from the old days. But we read on, there were three gates on each side of it, and verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so underneath the city, and we'll talk about the dimensions of the city in a moment, were 12 foundations, and each of them was named after an apostle, because this speaks to us of the New Testament times. It speaks to us of that which God did, as the apostles were the ones upon whom the church was built by Jesus Christ. So you have around the city a testimony to those Jewish people and in the foundation a testimony of the church and the apostles who started it out. It'll be interesting to see the 12 names of the apostles. One of the things when I get there I want to see which apostles are included. Pretty sure Judas isn't going to be one of them but in Acts chapter one the disciples kind of voted and then rolled the dice and picked Matthias um, I, I rather suspect that it would be Paul's name as the as the twelfth apostle instead, as he wrote, I believe, fourteen books of the New Testament. But we'll find out when we get there. Anyway, tribute to them, tribute to the tribes of Israel. And now, in verse fifteen, the guy talking to me had a gold reed, a measuring stick, to measure the city, its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, or about 1,500 miles. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So now you find out it's not a big rectangle. It's actually, and some commentators suggest it's a cube. Others say it's a, it's a square pyramid. But at any rate, it has you know, breadth and length and height. And so now you're seeing something massive, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles across, 1,500 miles wide in the other direction. And so if it's a multi-story, imagine how many stories you can get in a 1,500-mile-high high-rise. So we're talking about plenty of room for you to put your shoes, ladies. It'll, (laughs) It'll be there. So it's this massive city. And he says, "The construction of its wall was made of jasper." Jasper well, the, he measured the wall and it was 144 cubits or 260 or so feet um, high, so there's a little wall around it. And um, the construction of its wall was of, of Jasper, clear diamond. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. So it's not literally gold as we know it, because gold isn't clear. This is a transparent material that has all of the luster and shine and color qualities of gold. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first one being diamond or jasper, and then sapphire, chalcedon, and so on. Twelve different precious stones now. A lot of these stones, we can only speculate on what they are because we don't use the same terms or the terms we use are for something different. But most everyone agrees these are a lot of different colors, some yellow, some various shades of green and blue and red. What you see here is in these foundations is a rich array of colors. And again, all transparent. So more like looking at a prism than anything. What he is... Describing is something that is able to diffuse and and deflect light in such a way that probably, as you move around, it would even change colors. Just glistening, you can see through it. I mean, I have a paint job on my motorcycle that amazes me because I have flames on the tank and on the sides, that change colors as my angle changes. And so you walk by my motorcycle and the flames change from red to orange to purple to blue as the angle changes. Well, I I think that this New Jerusalem is going to be a better paint job than that so that you look at it and it's like, wow, look what the light does to this place. It just is shiny. This isn't something gaudy and ugly. This is something stunning, and when the light comes from the glory of God, it's like, wow. You know, today, all around us is every color that's known to mankind, but you only rarely see them. Usually, we see them broken down in a particular object. Once in a while, you witness a beautiful rainbow where the way the light hits the moisture in the air does it in just such a way that you begin to experience the beauty that's in the air, The same thing if you look through a prism or something like that. Well, this city is that way. It's just like, it's designed that when you see it coming down from heaven, you just go, whoa, look at that. It's just absolutely stunning and and gorgeous. And so we see the walls, we see the foundations. Um, Then the 12 gates in verse 21 are 12 pearls. Again, you can see through them, but pearlescent. Sort of, look, each individual gate was one pearl, big old thing. The street of the city was pure gold. By the way, there's only one street, so that's interesting. It must wind through the thing. Um, And it was pure gold, like transparent glass. Well, I've never seen pure gold that's like transparent glass. So again, it's an image. It has the luster of gold, but you could see through this whole thing. You can see through a 1,500-mile, massive structure. Something to see, definitely. And so he's preparing us so we don't totally freak out or look like, you know, look like hillbillies when we see it. It'll be like, oh yeah, I thought it was going to be something like this. And so he goes on and talks about several of the things that, there were, you know, he goes on and talks about several of the things that weren't there, and we'll skip over those for a moment. And, and then at the end, he says that only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are there. This is a place for people who've accepted Jesus Christ, responded to the gospel, and become his children. This is who they are, and this is what they experience. Now, I look at it, and I start going, This is going to be pretty cool. This is pretty amazing, just what he's shown me. Now, there's got to be so much more. He hasn't even talked about what's all over the earth, this new earth. If the earth that we know in its fallen state is as stunning as it is, imagine what that earth is going to be like. But here he just showed us about, "Ah, here's where you'll come to church. Here's where you'll just, this will be a special place for you in terms of worship this massive, prismic, gorgeous construction by God. But when we look through this chapter, there's even more about what it isn't. We've seen this is God's tabernacle. This is where he dwells with us. We've seen there's this city that's stunning and amazing and beautiful. But it's at least as informative when we look at what he excludes. What he says, this isn't there. And so let's just go through briefly and grab a few of those. Look at verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Wow. How much of our life is dominated by pain and by tears and by fighting back tears, and by trying to help other people not feel pain and tears. And and it seems like it's almost a full-time job for us to deal with pain management. And, and it becomes such a normal, accepted part of our lives that for the most part, the healthiest thing you can do is just try to not fight the pain. And yet, we have to fight the pain. It's a huge industry. It's a necessity. We... We know what pain is, we know what death is. We lose people that we love and it's devastating to us and it and it hurts us and we cry. There's something wrong with you if you don't cry when you lose someone that you love. But here, none of that is going on anymore. Today, deal with it. Pain is a part of life, but in the future, no more. We um Alisa Hill is in the hospital she's been in for the last week, since a week ago, and you can pray for her, but she has some kind of a blockage in her um, intestines, and, and she was earlier this week in enormous pain, and it was just so hard to see it. I, you know, in sitting there with her, and, it, it was, and the nurse came in at one point, and she was in a lot of pain, Jerry and I were there, and the nurse said, well, how would you describe your pain level, and she said about a seven you know, and so then they gave her something that made her sick to try to alleviate the pain. But that's what we do. We go, okay, how bad is it? And we compare it. Now, the scale changes as you get older. You just, once you get over 40, you pretty much hurt all the time. <laughs> you know, don't ask me how you feeling, because I'm old. It's just, it hurts. It always hurts. And now I don't have something cool that I did to make it hurt. It just happens. <laughs> I woke up this morning and then I hurt. And we get used to it. And so we put a score on it. And it's compared to the hurt I had yesterday. It's not so bad. I remember when I, when I had neck surgery and it hurt afterwards. And I, I didn't take any pain medication at all that was really stupid because pain medication could be a blessing. I remember when they unhooked my IV and I go, wait a minute, I haven't tried morphine yet. I I was seeing how far I could go and I missed the experience completely. But, but you know, the truth is what I experienced from the surgery wasn't nearly as painful as the pain that I had that caused me to need the surgery. And we just compare, but in heaven, that's just wipe that from your memory. Nobody's going to die. Nobody's gonna need comforting. Nobody's gonna to have to hurt anymore. Tears, pain, death, it's gone, it's missing. How will that change our lives? Radical, amazing, the lack of something that so dominates our consciousness today that will be in one fell swoop taken away for eternity. I can't wait for the pain to go away. I can't wait to not have to know that somebody else I need to talk to because they're in pain, and, I, and I'm trying to help them hurt less. And I, and I know that what I say might help, might not, but I can't take away their pain. It's frustrating. One of the things, too, one of the things I hate about pain the most is when people know you're in pain, they have all these solutions all these herbs and supplements and airborne and, you know, chicken soup and all sorts of things that they think is going to fix it. And I'm like, to me, all of that advice is even worse than the pain. (laughs) But all of that goes away. We don't have to deal with that anymore. And I love that. I'm not going to miss it at all. Then when you get down to verse 8, cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, perverts, sorcerers, idolaters, liars are all going to be busy burning in hell. So nobody like that is in heaven. You know, one of the things that you're told from when you're a little kid is, don't believe everything you hear. In heaven, nobody lies. So you can believe everything that you hear. And everything that you say will also be believable. You don't have to worry about somebody scamming and working a game. There's no dirt bags because everyone who's there has been washed clean by Jesus Christ. You don't have to put a lock on your door. You don't have to, you know, those people just are gone. Now all of us were those people, but we've been washed by Jesus Christ. We've been cleansed. And so when we get to heaven, all of these people, Characteristics aren't going to be there anymore. And if you look at the flip sides of all of those things that aren't there, it's a place of truth. It's a place of faithfulness. It's a place of joy. All, all of the things that we admire most are all a part of this heaven because these traits aren't there. A couple others I'll point out to you in verse 22 I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's a temple missing. Buildings for holiness, buildings for meeting God, have been a, an important part of humanity ever since practically the world began. Because we need to have a special place where periodically we can meet with God. And, and so we build buildings that we hope reflect the greatness of God. That's why we have cathedrals. That's why we do that. And, and I appreciate fancy buildings that are built and dedicated to the Lord. I, 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 if I'm jealous, I, I knock it. But the truth is, I get what people are trying to do by building temples from whatever religion. I understand you're trying to build something nice enough for God to show up in. Now, I clearly don't follow that, but, but, I, but I appreciate it and understand it. But in heaven, you don't need that. There's God's with you all the time, He's our temple. He meets us everywhere we are. Now, we have this new Jerusalem where we can go and get together and worship. That's probably more for our benefit and enjoyment, our celebration, more than him because he's with us all the time. But no need for a place, a holy place. Everywhere we go, he goes with us. And then in verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine. For the glory of God illuminated it, the Lamb is its light. So you don't even need the sun. I mean, with no sun, no sunscreen. <laughs> it's just because God's glory is just makes everything perfectly light. Now, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I read in the dark. I could read when it was almost pitch black. Now, not so much. You know, now I can have a light right on it and just go, are you sure? I, you know, because, because our capacities to absorb and and utilize light become depreciated well in heaven everything is like not too bright but just bright enough so that it's that constant glow of his glory and probably everywhere you look you're seeing colors reflected and refracted and it's just like wow perfect light you'll never have to flip a switch Never have to squint. Don't need reading glasses. You don't need all those things that we do to compensate for the fact that we are not absorbing light at the proper way. When you go out, it's not going to be too hot. It's not going to be too cold. It's going to be just right. Whatever just right feels like. No sun. No need for the moon. We go down to verse 25. The gates won't be shut at all. No need for security and there will be no night there. Nighttime is a blessing sometimes, but it's also a more dangerous time. It's when you lock your doors usually. Nighttime is also a time when you're worn out from the day and you're glad to see the sun go down because finally I get to rest. But in heaven, you'll be wide awake all the time and never get tired. I suppose if you want to take a nap, you will, but I I think you won't want to miss anything. It's just that vibrant, and you, you're not going to need nighttime, a time to restore, because it's just always the perfect time of day. It's always exactly where you want it to be. You'll be fully alert, and that's awesome. No, no night. And he says the, uh, in, down in verse 27, down at the end, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. No means there'll be anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. Just people in the Lamb's book of life. So again, the kind of people that bug you, the kind of people that make your life miserable, the kind of people that are driving you crazy, they won't be there. At least you won't recognize them because they'll be so different because of the transformation that happens with the resurrection. So these are all awesome things that I'm not going to miss. I'm not going to be there, you know, after a couple thousand years and go, you know, I wish someone would lie to me just so I could know I still have discernment. Don't need discernment. I'm not just going to go, you know, just for once, I'd love to be cold, freezing cold. Or I'd I'd like to have things look dim to me. No, I'm not going to miss that at all. I'm not going to be in heaven going, a little pain would be interesting right now. I miss those stomach aches when I ate too much of something sugar-free. No, I'm not (laughs) going to miss it at all. Not going to need sugar-free. No pain. This is awesome. So a lot's missing in heaven, and none of it are you really going to miss. But the last thing I want to mention, and I kept it for last even though it's listed first, is in verse 1, there was no more sea. And I've always had a hard time with this. And I, you know, I always say, you know, look, if you just have to have the ocean, if you need to surf, do it during the millennium. You'll have a thousand years to surf, and then there's no more sea. Now, there is water. We'll see next week there's a river of, of water running down and everything. So maybe you can wakeboard or something. But, but there's no more sea. And, I, and I, I, I'm bummed at that because I love the ocean. It's just such an important part of my life. I don't know if I would ever live very far from the ocean, and unless God just made me, um, really forced me to. So, but so I was looking at this this week and just going, why is there no more sea? And the analytical part of me says, well, I mean, for one thing, that makes the earth, you know. Four times larger, three times larger, so that's a plus, but there's plenty of space. I don't think there's going to be that many people in heaven that that's a problem. But I also thought, okay, now looking at it scientifically, do I need the ocean as a planet? And I realized, no, we won't. See, the job of the ocean is it's the Earth's filter the earth's filtration system, the water cycle with water being evaporated, coming up, rain falling, running down, back into, all of that recycling is basically, the water cycle is God's provision for pollution. And it would, we would choke on our own pollution if we didn't have the water cycle. But in heaven, you don't need that. In fact, most of our oxygen is produced by plants that grow at the surface of the ocean. And the ocean, if it didn't cover, you know, two-thirds to three-fourths of the earth the way it does, we would lack oxygen immediately. We would choke on our own carbon dioxide that the ocean absorbs. So I'm going, okay, scientifically, I understand you don't need an ocean. But a lot of what God's doing doesn't seem to be just all about function. God's Creation is almost always wasteful, according to somebody who would just be really utilitarian. So I'm going, what is this about, no more sea? And one of the things I thought of is, especially in those days, the sea was a major barrier between people. Land masses were separated from each other by the sea. And so here in heaven, there's perfect unity so there's no competition among nations. There still will be people probably from different nationalities in different places. We, we see that here in the closing verses, in verses 24 and 25. But, but this, this division that the sea is, as well as the, the danger and destruction of the sea, um, is something that for people who have been divided from other people, they would probably appreciate. But... I'm going, I'm still not satisfied with that. That's pretty much commentators and everybody say that. But so I'm standing next to the sea and I'm thinking about this and praying about it. And then all of a sudden I said, why do I love the sea so much? What is it about the ocean that causes such a balm for me, that causes it to be a place where God's word and and what he's doing in my life just seems to come alive? And, And I recognize that for me, the sea is an amazing source of comfort. When I hurt, I head right down to the shore. When I'm confused or wrestling with things, that's where I go to get my, get my grounding back, to feel fresh. Standing on the edge of the sea, you can imagine yourself sailing away, uh, you know, off toward the horizon, just it's an escape it's a it's a refreshing the rhythm of the sea the waves coming in so regularly the vastness of the sea reminding us that there's there's more than just us we're just a little small part of it all of these things are why i love the sea so much it's cleansing it's it's excitement it's it's sound it's roar all of these things i hang on to it because I'd go crazy, I think, without it. But when I get to heaven, the comfort that the sea gives me, the thrill and exhilaration of it, the clarity that comes to my mind as I walk on the sea and as I talk to the Lord, as I open my heart up to Him, sitting on a rock and just you know, focusing on Him, that's going to be how I feel all the time. And so what the sea offers to me I won't miss anymore because there's no reason. There's no pain that today sends me to the ocean. It's not there anymore. There's no need for clarity. I have it all the time. And so, trust me, whatever the best part of the sea is, God's got you covered. It's going to be a part of your life all the time. And I believe that as thankful as I am for the sea, I don't think we're going to miss it because the best thing the sea ever does for us is something that God will do for us every day. Now, in considering this passage, it occurred to me something else that might be missing from heaven. And I wanna be really clear here. You might be missing from heaven if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, never made that decision to respond to the gospel and ask Jesus to be your Lord, breaks my heart to tell you this, but we might get to heaven and go, you're not there. And we'll go, and maybe this is a part of tears being wiped from our eyes, but we go, you were in church all the time. You know, you even came on Wednesday nights, listened all week. You you studied, you scrutinized, you... And yet, somewhere along the line, you never got around to really giving your life to Jesus Christ. And it it just, I feel so just sick about thinking of people who I love who might be missing from heaven. And the people who are in heaven, as it says, are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Please, please make sure that you know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't want you to be missing from this picture. I really don't. I would give anything for you to join this picture and be with us in heaven. There's a song that I I heard last night, and I I love the song. It's a Pink Floyd song called Wish You Were Here. And and the song is about, there, there was a guy that started out in the band Sid Barrett, and he really got messed up from drugs and everything. And, he, and he, he left the band right before they hit it really big. And so the guys who were left in the band who experienced all the success of Pink Floyd wrote this song, and it was addressed to him. And going, man, you missed out on so much. And, and, and the song starts by saying, so, you think you can tell heaven from hell? Blue Skies from Pain. And the whole description is, it says, did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage? Have you been conned into putting yourself in a place where you're absolutely destroyed and restricted? Sadly, that song ends by the writers of the song, um, Gilmore and Waters, both you know, saying, how I wish, how I wish you were here. We're just two lost souls living in a fishbowl year after year, running over the same old ground. What have we found? The same old fears. Wish you were here. Their acknowledgement is, I'll be honest with you, I wish you were here, but where I am isn't so great. I'm lost. I'm confused. Well, when we get to heaven... Well, no, we've, we're out of the fishbowl. We, we've come to a place that we were designed to be and to now think of going, oh, how I wish you were here. You're missing all of this. So unnecessary, so tragic. You've been conned. You've been fooled. That's the truth. That's reality. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, you can do it today. People come up every week and express a desire to walk with Jesus. And there are people who will be up here in the front who would just, it would make their year if you would come to them and go, I don't want to miss this. It sounds enticing. I want to be away from the pain. I want to be in a place of of everyone I love being there, and, and, and I don't want to miss out. And so I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'll believe that he died for me and rose from the dead. And, and I want to trust him today. I want my name to be written in the book of life. If you aren't certain that you've done that, hey, it'll take you five minutes to come down after the service and make sure that you're right with God. Please do that. Please, I, I don't want to be singing about you. Oh, I, I wish you were here. This place is amazing. You can be there. You can. It's real. Let's pray. God, thank you for the constant invitation that you extend to us. As you describe this city and these people and this state of absolute comfort and joy and peace, and in all of it, you just say, come on. Come unto me. I'll give you this rest. I'm inviting you to be a part of this future, this eternity. God, you're so good. Lord, as we consider this reality, some of us are thinking of those we know that we so desire them to come along with us, help us to know how to communicate with them the possibility, the opportunity to be a part of this kingdom. Help us to pray for them, share with them, bring them to church. And God, for the people who are in here right now, who've come to church maybe many times, maybe this is their first time, but they've never made sure. I know that you are saying, I wish you were here because you aren't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So please draw them to yourself. Bring them home today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Again, come on down to the front if you need to get things right with God.